we could get Cameron to go on and on here about the, the, the beauty of film, but what does it say about a culture who doesn't have the attention span to hang in there for two hours in order to enjoy the full visual effect and force of what's going on there in the story and the world building and all of that? If we become a people who can't even do that, how are you going to pray for three minutes? How are you going to see the needs of others and meet them? How are you going to worship well? How are you going to build community? How, so to me, it's kind of like, meh, I'm neither here nor there. I don't really have, feel like I have a dog in a fight on, you know, book, film, all that. But what it says about us for what it means to be human does seem to have some implications. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. I read an article this morning and I was like, oh man, this is a question for Cameron. It's, it's actually a little bit depressing. Maybe. I don't, well, we'll see. So the title of the article, this is in the Wall Street Journal, was, is watching a movie the new reading a book? <laughs> with, the, <laughs> with the idea that in a highly distracted digital age, most people don't take time to sit down for a full two hours to watch a whole mm-hmm. movie all the way through. And the author of the article, Jason Gay, was saying that he recently did that and it felt like an accomplishment to him. He sat down and watched a movie all the mm-hmm. way through, beginning to end, no distractions, interruptions, no, you know, texting on his phone in the middle of it. And at the end of it, he had the same rush or feeling of accomplishment as he did when or used to have when finishing reading a book. I don't know. I was like, I know a guy who loves film and loves books, so yep. I should talk to him about that and see if he thinks, uh, is this a thing? Or what does it say about us? Yeah, I mean, I want to parse out some of the the issues here for yeah so dwindling attention spans have been a news item for oh a long time i think that's almost a feature of the modern landscape so i i'm not saying that to diminish the importance i'm just saying people were writing articles about how newspapers were destroying attention spans back when those made their mm-hmm. entrance so this is well before the advent of smartphones and all of that so this has been a topic of conversation for a long time Also, implicit in this setup, not necessarily, I'm not sure whether this journalist is saying this or not, is the assumption that reading a book is superior to watching a movie or that books are a superior form of recreation or a superior form of art, if we're talking about novels, to cinema. Now, I'm just going to set that aside for right now. That's I'm not sure that's necessarily... We'll have to come back to this. That's worth, I just want to, we can come back to that because I I have a feeling you may have some thoughts on that, Nathan, or some feelings on that. But that's an, I just want to point out that's often an assumption that's not worked out fully. We just tend to assume, well, you know, reading is, is better for you and reading is good for you in the same way that, you know, eating broccoli is good for you. (laughs) You may not enjoy it, but (laughs) it's very nourishing and it will really help your mind and you ought to do it and your teachers tell you you ought to do it and it's mind expanding and so on. So I just wanted to bring some of those issues to the forefront. Movies have changed too. I mean, there are a number of different challenges to cinema that are happening right now. And this, I mean, this has been in the works for a while, but people increasingly don't want to go to movie theaters. And movie theaters, of course, are fighting for their lives because the movie theater is, that's the quintessential cinematic experience. You walk into that darkened auditorium with the massive screen that just sort of takes over your whole field of vision. And ideally speaking, now you silence your phone or maybe you don't even bring it in there with you. It's a kind of movie sanctuary. 
But people that smells like yes, buttery. But popcorn. people are less and less inclined to do that. It smells like buttery popcorn. But it's people are less inclined to do that because, of course, you have available to you at your home all of these same movies. You can purchase them digitally, and you can be a purist and say it's not the same. It's not the experience. But in America, generally speaking, convenience usually wins out over purism. So movies are are being challenged from that front. But also, television is increasingly cinematic. I mean, it used to be the case, Nathan, that television, at least in its cinematography and elements like that, was very, I mean, there was a pronounced difference. It was inferior. It wasn't, it didn't look as beautiful. That's not the case anymore now. You have plenty of television shows that really can go toe-to-toe with movies, but not only that, they have an advantage. So not only do you not have to make the inconvenient trip to a movie theater, they have an extended timeline. You have episodes. You can develop your story and you can enrich your characters and you go. You can go to a depth that movies mm-hmm. really can't, not unless they swell into epic length. And then they're already running into some problems. And interestingly enough, one of the bigger... There were two great movies this this year, and one of them was really long. Well, so the other thing, though, is we're using let's let's not get confused when we use the word TV because I would say the amount of quote television that's being watched is plummeting at as fast of a rate as actual full length films. Now that you have so many streaming services available to you, and the streaming service doesn't have to abide by the same time constraints for commercial breaks, like a like an old classical television show would have needed to do. So now if you're streaming something on Netflix or whatever, it can be as long as they want it to be and it doesn't have that same external um, time boundary on it. So even there, there's a a lot is changing just as the technological ability to develop and really high quality um, visual and audio resources. um, You no longer have to be in, it's not like there's one studio in the world now that can produce this. This is, you know, Available to the masses. Yes, and so the streaming service further complicates that by, yeah, making it, basically, it's completely controlled by you at your whim. There's no schedule that you have to follow. Another, I mean, call this the TikTok effect. Now you have increasingly, you've got younger generations who won't even watch a television show. They'll watch shorts, little skits, often put together by people who are not professional actors or anything like that. We've talked before about some of these TikTok comedians and people in the online space. This stuff makes its way over into Instagram as well. But the point here that I'm making, I don't want to sit here and sound like two old dudes name dropping all of the, (laughs) you know, the current social media to prove our bona fides or anything like that. My point is it's shrinking. It's getting even shorter. And so you've got even you've got shorter and shorter little entertainment snippets. And it's not that people will take in less people still take in massive massive amounts oh, of media yeah wasn't it but like, it's that the individual parts are less you're going through yeah yeah piece after piece after, or a little short after short after short after short and this just sort of running yeah it, it's been it was years ago like Cycle when, of when facebook was a more popular platform when people somebody pointed out that people read the equivalent of the entire works of shakespeare as far as word count goes on facebook each year so the amount of mm-hmm. information that you're taking in is is, yeah. is phenomenal. It's just not all directed in the same place. But yep. so, I, I, yeah, I guess we could sit here and say, well, you know, everybody's talking about diminishing attention spans. But the fact of the matter is, is that I'm pretty sure that even 15 years ago, Cameron, if you and I were having this conversation, we would say, okay, 
not everybody can sit down and read a 400 page book in a go, but everybody can watch a two hour movie. I mean, that is very little mental energy mm -hmm. that goes into, you right. know, you're passively consuming oftentimes. Um, it, it would, 15 years ago, it would have seemed ridiculous to anybody listening to this to think about it being an effort to set aside two hours to watch a movie. And I think that is the reality that is the, right. the jarring thing here is not that there's a change. Sure, newspaper, telephones, the whole thing all the way back. But it's the rate of that change of our diminishing attention spans. And then we could also even get into the idea of what does that mean for the way in which we live our lives if we aren't able to focus on something for two hours. Um, so I think it's the, the rate of change there is the thing that is surprising even the people who find themselves in the midst of it. Yeah, and there's also the fact that we increasingly want to have a hand in shaping our entertainment. And so this is something that is draw that Tara Isabella Burton in her book Strange Rights, R-I-T-E-S, draws a lot a lot of attention to when she talks about the whole fan fiction phenomenon. So it's easy one of the easiest places to point here, Nathan, is the Harry Potter franchise. So you have fan sites that sprang up around Harry Potter that were immensely, are immensely popular. And you, I mean, you had people who were writing these, you know, who were writing fan fiction becoming best sellers. Now that in and of itself is interesting, but it's not that big a deal. But what is, what's happened though, is it's led to a mindset. And you can see this with a lot of the superhero franchises as well. But the mindset is that we, the fans, get to we we should have a hand in how this story plays mm -hmm. out. Well, and, and she she looks at the ways in which a lot of Harry Potter fans have turned on J.K. Rowling for not being sufficiently progressive, or you know, and and really said you know she's she's she needs to be you know basically close her mouth and let us handle things from here, even though she's the author. Right? <laughs> well, you also see this in um every once in a while you'll see a headline particularly in more like the cartoon genre. I think it was a couple of years ago. There was one where like there was a remake of Sonic the Hedgehog and everybody just hated the design. Mm -hmm. And there was such an uproar about it that, you know, the artist yep. went back to the studio, redid the, um, so the sense in which we, but also in some of those larger ones with fan fiction, there's a good deal of world building that's happening alongside those. So it's, you're, you're creating not just a story, but a world that people like to envision themselves in and then communicate with other people who see themselves inside that world. Now, I don't think that that is unique to film. Obviously, like you said, you have the Harry Potter books, but um, I think Jane Austen has a, a bit of this. You can you can find these, you can figure out which books do this by the amount of merch that they have that mm -hmm. goes with the uh, games and the t-shirts and the, everything else that goes alongside them. So... Yeah, that's that's always been there. I think kind of, but not to this degree because now what what my point is here is not so much that people are are world building, but that we expect a it's interactive. We want to we want increasingly to interact with the cultural artifacts that we take in, but also we want them to reflect our own wishes and desires. We want to customize them. That seems to me and we're we're able to do so because now Studio executives pay attention to these forums. They look at the comments. And in some of these shows, Riverdale comes to mind. They will change character arcs to satisfy 
fan bases. So I see that as something very bad. Well, hang on. Is this <laughs> because is this I don't think is this a is this a logical fulfillment of we've talked about David Foster Wallace's critique of television, you know, was that late nineties or something, where he said mm-hmm. that largely what you see on television is the way that the audience wants the world to be. So people get all appalled at like, look at the content that's on here. And you're like, no, that's because television is suited to the way that you want to see the world. Is is this then just because we have the technological and sociological technology to have everybody involved in the creation of the story? Is this the natural outworking of that desire that the thing on the screen is the fulfillment of the way that we want the world to be? Well, the way we want the world to be increasingly is on, I mean, is personalized to our own to our preferences and so in that sense yes and so yeah you will see a lot of films not just sonic the hedgehog but the hulk or another one that comes to mind is ghostbusters where ghostbusters was remade with an all-female cast and then that got a massive it got trolled by a massive counter reaction who rejected the sort of ostensible feminist message of this. And now, and I think another remake might be on the way, but there's something very, so that on the one hand, this, this does reflect our moment where we want everything on our own terms. And there's the sense of entitlement that comes along with that. On the other hand, now I'll, I'll have some other, I'll bring up some other issues here that I think great films, great art will continue to always be made. That's part of, I mean, human beings always find ways to get it done. <laughs> and to quote Michael Crichton and Jurassic Park, life finds a way and great art finds a way through any obstacle and gets, I mean, human beings are creative we, and we find ways around this. But to my mind, the reason I think this is bad is because a serious film or a ser- just a serious work of art, period, will push back on you. It mm-hmm. will challenge you. And in fact, my experience usually is Nathan, whether it's a book, a great book or a great film is I usually won't like it when I first watch it. I won't usually like it when I first read it because it's, it's a, it's a feeling of profound cognitive dissonance. Sometimes it's different. Sometimes it's just, wow, this is saying so beautifully or capturing so, so beautifully something I've always felt, but never been able to express. There's that. But then there's also the feeling of being profoundly pushed, being profoundly challenged. You have a confrontational piece of art. And that doesn't mean it's necessarily really dark. That just means it can. It's just in causing intense thought for you. That's a that's a really special and very instructive and nourishing feeling. It's much harder to do that when you have an audience who only wants you to give them something in their own image. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whose story is it? Is the question. And I think that's easier to see the manipulation mm-hmm. of that in right. a modern era than it is to say, well, the brothers Karamazov. Uh, like that's Dostoevsky's, right? right? That's you know, a perfect example. And we, yeah. can, and we can't mess with that, even though it's weird and uncomfortable and beautiful all at the same time. Um, so mm-hmm. it, maybe the tension that I'm, that I'm sensing here in myself is this, that let's, let's parse, let's make a distinction here between film and books because everybody always rolls their eyes or the yeah, common, yeah. the common phrase of, well, the movie is never as good as the book. Would would you say that when you're talking about mm-hmm. film, Cameron? Not true. You're you're speaking. Okay, so there's the not true there yeah. part. But would you say that some of the best films are written specifically yeah. to be films? That they understand the medium as part of the message in the creation of the thing. Um, that 
Mm-hmm. That that's part of what makes something really special if it is made just for. Because I would imagine that something yeah. that was produced, Star Wars. I don't know. Are there good Star Wars books? I don't mm-hmm. know. Like, does it work backwards the other direction? It doesn't. Seem, I don't know either. <laughs> seem to yeah. me that that would work as yeah. well if you're trying to take mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. If something is a really good book, that does it yep. might always never be a great movie, and a great movie may never be a good book. I'm not sure. Just because it fundamentally yeah, by the so author wasn't there, intended to be that other thing. Yeah, there's no fail-safe rule here. I'm going to give you a couple. I'm going to rattle off some examples because listeners are going to be interested, I think, of I, movies that I think are better than the books. Oh, boy. And some people might be yelling sacrilege at me here. No Country for Old Men. Cormac McCarthy is one of my favorite writers. No Country for Old Men is not his best book. It's a great movie. The Coen Brothers film is superior to the book. There, I said it. Fight Club. David Fincher's Fight Club is better than Chuck Palahniuk's book. It just is. And I'm not necessarily recommend all of the movies that I happen to be rattling off here are very strong in content. So just take, you know, just a warning there. I'm not saying go out, watch these immediately. This I always get in trouble for naming movies. Well, you said I should watch. I didn't say you should watch anything. I'm just saying these are skillfully made films. American Psycho. American Psycho, the movie, is succeeds way better as a satire, as a social satire than the book does. And then finally, Train Spotting. Train Spotting is a better movie than the book, and most people are agreed on that. So these are all very modern examples. Yeah, but you also gave so, examples of films that most people didn't know there was a book that went with them because the film itself overran, overshadowed. Yeah, for I mean, yeah. except for No Country for Old so, Men, perhaps. Okay, so let's spell out the difference though, and so, because in my experience, Christians have a hard time with with films <laughs> because Christians try to read films, and you don't read a film; you should watch a film. So the primary difference, and this is going to sound like a truism, but it needs to be stated because people, so many people, especially Protestants, try to read films. We try to dig in there for, you know, we want the ideas, we want the worldview, we want the philosophy, what, what does it mean? And that's all important, but that's going to be spelled out for you, not in words, but images. Film is a visual language. Film started without words. It's all about those images on the screen. So the visual poetry of a movie. Now, some movies are made just for as commercial entertainment or just for entertainment, and that's fine. But serious films are going to be using their imagery in a very, very specific way. There's a reason, for instance, why all of the frames in the shower sequence of of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho have been so extensively studied because the way he sets that up is so clever and so precise. He's able to imply so much more than he's actually showing you, but it nevertheless manages to be a very shocking and disconcerting scene. Okay, hang on a second. Because of the clever editing. Hang on. Okay, so to bring this back to the topic that we're on, do you get the same effect, having not seen any of the movies that you've mentioned, do you get the same effect if you watch them in 30-second pieces, one per day for a year? It's a great question. No, absolutely not. No, a film is... The, there, there's the there is what I would just call the total effect of a film, but this is similar to a book and a short story. You're also not going to get the total effect of the short story if you read it in snippets, or the novel if you you know read it in tiny little pieces. Come back to it maybe a year and a half later, pick up where you started. That kind of fragmentary experience is not the way it was meant to be taken in. So no, you cannot experience the film as it's meant to be seen unless you watch it all at once. Okay, well, let let me do a little toe-stepping here. Do you know who the worst group of people for taking a piece of writing and chopping it into little pieces to study it is? Christians. What's that? Who's that? For sure, Christians. 
Mm. I mean, when was like Galatians was yeah. probably not meant to be read four verses at a time or Romans or any of the you know letters right. of the New Testament. Yeah, but we we kind of tend to do yep. that where instead of reading the whole thing through a couple of times and then yes. going back and studying the parts, we we bore down and I'm, yeah, those that can be meaningful, but let's recognize what the intended way to consume the thing was is, you know, most of the epistles you can read in right. 10 to 15 minutes. It's not like you don't have time to do it. It's just that we we don't have the attention span to do it. And so that's kind of where I'd be interested in going with this conversation then is to say, okay, you know, we it's could, important. We could yeah. get Cameron to go on and on here about the, the the beauty of film, but what does it say about a culture who doesn't have the attention span to hang in there for two hours in order to enjoy the full visual effect and force of what's going on there in the story and yeah. the world building and all of that? If we become a people who can't well, even do that, how are you going to pray for three minutes? How are you going to see the needs of others and meet them? How are you going to worship well? Mm -hmm. How are you going to build mm -hmm. community? How So to me, yes. it's kind of like, meh, I'm neither here nor there. I don't really feel like I have a dog in the fight on you know book, okay. film, all that. But what it says about us for what it means yep. to be human does seem to have some implications. Well, here's a, okay, I'll give you a highly personal example. And Nathan, as you, as you know, I had a, a bit of a medical emergency last week with my son who needed to go and, and have his appendix out. So this was not a planned trip to the hospital at all. So I head out there with him. We arrive at six o'clock and in the morning, this whole thing, you know, as it, or, as it does takes a long, yeah, yeah. Well, no, six o'clock at night. And oh. then we don't get any answers until 1230 okay, yes. in the AM. I knew you were there overnight. And then, so anyway, you're there for a, a lot. Yeah. You're there for, I was there for an all in all about three days. Didn't have, I didn't have a book with me. I didn't have anything with me. I just had, it was just me and my son and everybody kept writing to me. Oh, you must be so tired. Oh, this must be terrible. And the only, the word that kept coming to mind was I was given a beautiful opportunity to keep vigil. And that's the word that kept coming to mind with, with Dylan to wait with him. And to, and we, he just, he just talked to me the whole time, partly because he wanted comfort and consolation, but partly just because he's, his roving, restless mind just continued to rattle on even as he was lying there. And it was, I didn't have and my, oh, and my battery on my phone was dying, by the way, as well. And I didn't have a charger with me. So all of the distractions, the Lord had deftly eliminated every kind, any distraction I could have had with me to take my presence away or diminish my presence with my little boy. And so it was just he and I. And in a hospital, most of what you do is wait. You're always waiting for the next nurse or waiting for the doctor. And it can take ages. You never know how long it's going to take in between. So just those, those long hours where I just had to be with him, stay awake, pay attention, listen to him, be an active presence for him. And it was very, it was richly rewarding. And it was wonderful to not have any of my preferences, you know, there, not, not have, not, I wasn't able to customize anything in the room. The television wasn't even working. The volume wasn't working. All of that was marvelous. And I think we just live in a time where everything revolves around your mood now. Everything is about controlling your moods and whether you feel like something or not. And so, and again, that that ties to our preferences. You 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 even you even have that as a as a designation in your devices, your preferences. I think as a spiritual exercise, it's probably helpful for us to work to get away from our preferences a little bit every now and then to do this probably on a daily basis. I mean, with regard to scripture, like you were saying, Dallas Willard, one spiritual exercise he recommends is read the entire New Testament several times over. 
He's like, and you can, and you can do it. I don't care if you set, if you set aside, if you set your mind to it, it really won't take you that long. Just read, just read the entire New Testament. He yeah. did this about forty he, hours. I think he once said he read it. He he committed to reading it three, yeah, three times in a week once or something like mm-hmm. that. I mean, that's that might be a bit ambitious, but that kind of, yeah, would that require some sacrifices? Yes, in the sense that it would require you to, yeah, push aside those preferences. The things that, you know, are lined up to fit your mood, sure. But will there be amazing rewards there? Absolutely. But I think we have to intentionally push against everything being driven by our mood because everything around us is going to try to is going to try to cater to that. And so, yeah, I think we have to be intentional about moving away from the diminishing attention span that comes with just being controlled by our mood because well, reading in what you're talking about requires more participation from you, especially. So if we're talking about a novel, like let's, let's take East of Eden, which is, I know one of your favorites. Yeah. So you, you are actively part of the, the dynamic process of reading the book because it's your imagination. It's being now John Steinbeck is the one who who's instigating the process. And, mm-hmm and painting giving you the vision but you as a reader have to w- have to work with John Steinbeck or whatever whatever author you're you're interacting with this is this is very much a collaboration in a way but the film here's where the here's where a film becomes can one of the one of the charges against cinema and I take this really seriously is that so Paul Schrader who is a director and also a critic says cinema is profane to its guts it's a really good phrase. What he means by that is that cinema is inherently seductive because you don't have a choice in the images. They're, they're, mm-hmm. they, they're not on your own terms and they're not on your own time. Like Nathan said, they are forced on you. This image, this is why films can be very manipulative. So a director can give you a scenario that's highly implausible. It doesn't make any sense at all. But if he communicates that or she communicates that scenario to you in very strong visuals, you are manipulated into believing it. Your your kind of your reasoning is is kind of over it overrides you for a second, and in a way that a book won't do. So cinema demands a certain care because of that, because you're because you're getting the images directly, and you have no choice in the matter, and so it can it can assault you. That's why cinema is really powerful. Now, you don't want to hear me go on drone on and on about cinema, but I mean there is there are films. I'll just say this. There are some films that are contemplative in their structuring and in their pace and their slowness. And this is Paul Schrader wrote about this. He calls this the transcendental style in cinema. It's as good a designation as any anything. But he's talking about movies that are spiritual and that reject that seductive element by giving you a slower pace, less music, less of the manipulative tactics to force you to think and force you also to participate. So the greatest of all of these films, by the way, is a little is not a little film at all. It's 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 a great film. It's called Tokyo Story. Tokyo Story may be one of the greatest movies ever made. It's very slow. It's very meditative. Essentially, on the outside, it's just about an, an old couple, parents going to stay with their children, and the visit doesn't go very well, and they feel like they're unwanted and like they're in the way, and 
it's it's just one of the most heartbreaking and beautiful things you've ever seen and it doesn't overact it doesn't it doesn't try to manipulate you or make any decisions for you now it's the rare rare film that does that by the way most films are way more seductive and that's just part of the medium but yeah i think i just wanted to get that word in the <laughs> so let's take that in defense a, of some films can do it yeah as a segue here then to say that here's an interesting thing so you and i have a friend who we have a friend who was talking to a friend who did some evaluation um, with a lady who was kind of doing like, you know, life assessment kind of stuff. And our friend said to his friend, you know, what was that like? And his friend said, I've never had somebody listen to me for four continuous hours. Just sit down and listen just to me and my story and take notes and make listening noises and write out some suggestions. And that and he, and he said his first thought was wow you have lame friends. But on the other hand when was the last time that you sat with somebody for 1 hour of undivided attention and gifted that to another human and said I'm going to sit here and listen to you, you tell me about your life what you're thinking about what you're brainstorming what you're wrestling with. And so on one hand we can say ah oh, people don't have the attention span to read a book. Ah oh, people don't have the attention span to watch a film for 2 hours. Um Part of me is like, meh, okay, whatever. Interesting. But when we get to the point where we don't have time for other people, that's where there's some serious spiritual, communal, and definitely church and worship-related problems that are going to manifest themselves in our life. So that's just something to, to keep in mind there as we move forward, that maybe one of the greatest gifts you can give over the holidays is an undivided attention to somebody who very rarely is able to exercise it themselves possibly never or within the last year hasn't had somebody listen to them maybe even for 15 minutes of undivided attention and so that's a a good challenge i think but it's also there's something a little mournful in me about it of saying if we're coming to the place as humans where we don't have the time for each other um then we're then we're losing something about the fullness of what is possible so Anyway, I hope you get to read a good book over the holidays or a couple or maybe even see a good film. But even more so, I hope you get to spend some time with people and listen to them and direct your uh, undivided attention to hearing someone else. And I hope that you have friends in your life and are finding community that can reciprocate that for you. Let's be mindful of our attention. It's a big part of what it means to be a Christian. It's what Jesus calls us to. Paul reminds us to um, set our minds on things above. And so where you place your attention and your ability to uh, direct it with quality and with any duration and a good direction is one of the most wonderful things that you can work on cultivating and stewarding in your life. And so let's be people who lean into that. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.